You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We've all been there at the family barbecue when you can't get Uncle Hal to let go of his idea that extraterrestrials are letting the air out of his tires. I'm telling you, they were down to 21 pounds. Now you tell me, how did tires lose air at night with nobody around? It's got to be aliens. Maybe the valves are leaky. You just don't want to admit that they're here. Okay, so maybe Uncle Hal should ease up on the Cuba Libras. But we've all heard beliefs that are probably irrational, most definitely improbable, although thoroughly compelling. Crossword puzzles are easier to do the day after the crossword comes out because collective crossword puzzle energy fills the ether. Hurricane Sandy was a government plot to cancel ferry service to Staten Island. Wi-Fi networks cause reverse hypnosis. I read that. There's this secret code in everyone's phone number that will determine who gets saved in the case of an asteroid strike. Oh, and it's gonna happen. Now, we often associate bizarre beliefs as being held by other people, not within our own crowd. Because if it's a stranger or a co-worker that you don't know well who confides to you... You know, people who own parakeets live longer. We can just smile and give them a wide berth. But sometimes the people we love the most, friends and family, subscribe to these ideas, and we just kind of have to accept that. I mean, they have these beliefs that on their face seem a little bit wacky, and I, I always wonder, do they have any evidence for that? And I just can't believe they believe no matter how much rational scientific argument I might throw at their idea. Welcome to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic check, friends like these. And why else would there be an oil spot under the car? I mean, directly under the car. Think about it. Okay, so what did we do? Well, we asked our listeners on Facebook. I guess technically that means there are readers. Yes, they're listeners who can read and write. Okay, to share with us the most personal, problematic, and perplexing beliefs of their family and friends. And then we called in the scientific-minded experts to weigh in on their merit. And some of them do have merit. Now, Big Picture Science listeners listed a lot of beliefs that were health-related, so we'll start with those, because more than a few of them were eyebrow-raising. But just how far should we raise our brows? Well, we'll leave that to physician Stephen Novella at the Yale School of Medicine. Okay, Steve, let's kick this off. One listener writes that a family member believes in iridology. Well, first off, you got to tell me what iridology is. This is definitely towards the silly end of the spectrum. This is a belief that was really in, invented out of whole cloth in 1893 by a Hungarian physician named Ignaz Pesley, although he was a notorious quack, if you will, at the time, a miracle healer, for example, and then a homeopath, which is basically the same thing. And he claims that he found an owl with a broken leg and then nursed it back to health, treated it, and he noticed that this dark fleck in the iris of the owl's eye went away when the leg healed. And from that single observation, whether or not it actually happened, he invented this entire belief system that you can diagnose any problem in the body by looking at the colors, the flecks of color in the iris of the eye, as if it's a map a map of the whole health of the body. Well, wait a minute. So I just look into somebody's eyes and I can see their medical history. I can see, can I see their medical present? Can I diagnose diseases that they may have today of which they're unaware? That is the claim, although when pushed, modern practitioners of iridology 
uh, hem and haw a lot. So, for example, they'll say, well, you can't diagnose pregnancy because that is a, uh, a natural, healthy condition of the body. And this one gets me. You can't diagnose that somebody has had surgery because anything that happens to the body under anesthesia is not reflected in the iris. In essence, you can't diagnose anything that's truly objective. And what they're left with is essentially a medical cold reading where they say, oh, you, I see you have a tendency for liver disease because you have a fleck in your, the liver section of your iris. Now, whether you have liver disease or not, they'll consider it a hit. If you do, they say, oh, look at that. I diagnosed your liver disease. If you don't, they say, well, you have a predisposition for liver disease. This is something you should worry about. Here, let me give you these supplements that will support your liver function. Well, Steve, iridology has been tested, right? They've actually taken a group of people, some of whom were sick, others who were not, and taken them to iridologists to see how they scored? Yeah, there have been a few studies looking at iridologists' ability to make diagnoses. And like anything that's fake or fantastical, as soon as you uh, test it in a blinded observing conditions, the effect completely goes away. And so iridologists are not able to diagnose anything when they're blinded to what they're reading. In fact, in one now infamous study, they were unable to tell that they were looking at the iris of a monkey versus a human or that they were looking at a glass eye. <laughs> oh, that, that's a serious failure. Another listener writes that one of his relatives is keen on the blood type diet. Perhaps you could explain what that is. Well, blood type, there are actually multiple blood types, but the one that most people are familiar with are the ABO type. You know, are you blood type A, ABO? Uh, the, this refers to antigens that exist on red blood cells. These are genetically determined. These antigens are mainly carbohydrates. And so if you have the genes for the A type, then you express that carbohydrate on the outside of your red blood cells. Uh, the A type or the B type or both or neither gives you the O type, you also will make antibodies against the blood type that you don't have. So if your blood cells express A, then you'll make antibodies against B. And this is why you have to type blood before you can receive or, you know, or donate it. You have to give compatible blood to people, otherwise you'll, your antibodies will attack the blood cells. So this Dr. Diadomo, he came up with this idea that, well, blood types evolved in order to adapt to the diet that the people in that time and place were eating. So hunter-gatherers had developed the O blood type, and therefore, if you have blood type O, you should eat the same kind of diet as hunters. You should eat a lot of protein, and you should avoid wheat and dairy products, for example. But this is based upon exactly zero science. The, the basic concept that these carbohydrates on your red blood cells are react to things in food, uh, specifically Diodomo claimed that uh, this chemical substance lectin would react with your blood type, for example, that this is responsible for disease and illness is completely implausible and, and ha doesn't have a lick of science behind it. There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that people of different blood types react differently to different kinds of foods. So every link in that chain is completely implausible and utterly without any evidence. Well, okay. Now, I'm type A. What would that be? What sort of diet would this diet recommend for me, even if it is implausible? Blood type A is the agrarian diet. So if you're O, then you like to eat a lot of protein. If you're A, then you should be vegetarian and eat a lot of vegetables, which, you know, <laughs> that's not a bad idea. Anyway, to eat your fruits and vegetables, but regardless of your blood type. The thing that's dangerous about this, if people follow this rather than actual science-based nutritional advice, that they actually might be having an unhealthy diet. But people love this notion that something is personalized to them. It's like the horoscope. The idea that this is you know, selected for you and is specific for you is, is gratifying in some way. So these kinds of, of systems really sell, even when, again, they're based on nothing at all. Yeah, I guess the real point is that so few diets actually work for people that they're always eager to glom onto the, the newest, trendiest one. I kind of like this, though. It is personalized, isn't it? I mean... In Japan, blood type, they relate blood type to personality, just like we do horoscopes, you know, or the time that you were born to personality. Everybody w would know, for example, the blood type of whoever is, is running for office, because that, that is supposed to say something about their personality. But again, it's just pure pseudoscience, just happens to be something that's widely believed in, uh, in Japan. People have said, I have a type A personality. Well... <laughs> 
Andrew wrote us, and he said, My dearest believes that newspaper ink causes cancer. What about that? Well, from a certain perspective, that may be true. Uh, there was a study linking lung cancer to workers in factories, in newspaper factories, that were exposed for years to breathing in ink mist. So that's a little bit different than getting a little bit of ink on your fingers from reading the newspaper. So that's the, an industrial exposure. You know, somebody I'm breathing in ink mist for years, they had a higher risk of lung cancer. That's plausible. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that touching ink, getting ink on your skin, writing on your hand, or getting it, rubbing it off the newspaper is of any risk. I did look up to see if uh, there was anything, any information to relate ink at all to cancer. I did find a review article looking at all the published evidence for tattoo ink. Now, think about this. People who have tattoos have ink injected under their skin, and it stays there for decades. If there was any risk of ink to causing cancer, you would think people with tattoos would be at the highest risk. But they found very few episodes, reported episodes, of tattoo ink being associated with skin cancers. Essentially, it was the background noise rate. And they said that there is no correlation, essentially, between getting tattooed and cancer. So that seems pretty reassuring if you're worried about the uh, the risks of, of exposure to ink. Just don't breathe it in. <laughs> okay. Well, when I open up the New York Times uh, in the morning, I, I, I very seldom breathe in the ink, at least as <laughs> right. far as I know. Brian wrote us, and he said he had heard that vitamin C megadosing after the onset of a cold will cure it. Yeah, the evidence there is a little complicated, but let me try to summarize it pretty quickly. Vitamin C and the common cold is something that's been studied for decades. Uh, and so there is actually quite a few research papers about it, quite a bit of evidence. One thing that's very clear is that the routine supplementation with vitamin C, just taking it all the time, is of no benefit. It does not prevent you from getting the cold. The evidence for supplementing at the time you get the cold is mixed and shows a possible very weak effect. In other words, if you take large doses, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say mega doses, I wouldn't take thousands of units of vitamin C, I, you know, maybe just 500 or 1,000 milligrams. If you take that dose right at the very beginning of your cold, within 24 hours, there may be a very tiny decrease in the duration of cold symptoms, like hours. In terms of like a week-long cold, you may have a you know six or ten or whatever hours less of symptoms. So the effect is so small that we're not we can't even be sure that it's real because it's within the noise of the ability to measure these things. I mean, when you have a cold, can you say to within an hour when your symptoms stopped? Yeah, you know, <laughs> no, I don't think so. As I recall, this all goes back to the famous chemist Linus Pauling, who published a yeah. book in 1970. You know, vitamin C and the common cold, and he was claiming that. Massive doses of vitamin C would not only cure the common cold, but I don't know, it sort of suggested you might get immortality by, by taking all this vitamin Z. Yeah, I mean, he really was touting it as a, as a panacea. You know, he created the orthomolecular diet and based upon this kind of notion, never panned out. The fact is vitamin C is water soluble. Whatever you don't absorb and use uh, in the short term, you will simply pee out. Uh, some doctors say that all you're going to do there is give yourself expensive urine. But there's actually also evidence that taking mega doses of vitamin C for a long period of time may actually increase the risk of heart disease. It, you shouldn't assume that vitamins are benign because they're vitamins. Any vitamin can be toxic if you take too much of it. And even vitamin C, if taken in high doses for a long period of time, may this is not conclusive, but there's reason to, to suspect in the evidence that we have that there may actually be some increased risk of it. So it's probably never a good idea to take extreme doses of anything. You know, the notion that if a little bit is good, more is better does not really hold up in the complex world of medicine and biology. Steve, what about zinc? I mean, there's at least one product I know about out there that contains some zinc, and the claim is that there's real, honest-to-goodness evidence that it helps reduce 
the severity of colds. Any truth to that? The level of evidence is about the same as for vitamin C. There are a number of studies and there have been recent uh, reviews looking at all the data and saying, what does it really show? And they conclude that if you take zinc in, again, within 24 hours of the onset of a cold, it has a very mild effect on decreasing the duration of symptoms. Again, so small that we can't really be sure that the effect is real. Uh, it may not be worth it. One of the problems with zinc is that the zinc lozenges, which many of these studies use, have a pretty foul taste to them. So that has two significances. One is you may not think it's worth it to subject yourself to it in order to have a small decrease in the duration of the cold. The second thing is it makes it difficult to blind the studies because the people who are getting the zinc know that they're getting something other than a sugar pill because it has this weird medicinal taste to yeah. it. So that unblinding that may occur from that may be enough to explain why there's this slight increase uh, in effect, there's this or slight decrease in the duration of, of the cold with the zinc. So vitamin C and zinc may have a small effect in terms of decreasing duration if taken early on in the cold, but it's not 100% clear even after multiple studies. And so there certainly isn't any large or significant effect. Wow. I guess I can stop chewing on flashlight batteries or <laughs> licking tin cans. Jesse wrote, My grandparents both use magnets and bars of soap under their pillows to help stave off nighttime leg cramps. <laughs> yeah. Does, does that... the, the bars of soap, that's just an old wives' tale. That's not based upon any rationale as far as I've been able to find. I think it's just a, an urban legend. Uh, sometimes people will claim that certain specific brands of soap, like ivory soap, are necessary to work. But again, no, there's no evidence for it. There's no reason to think that it would work, has no plausibility. The magnets thing, it's, it's essentially the same in that magnets either in your shoes, on your blanket, in your pillow, under your pillow, has no health effects or symptomatic benefits. It does not re reduce cramping. The magnets, though, that has a long history. Magnets go back to hundreds of years. I mean, to the time when magnets and magnetism was really first understood and studied scientifically. From the very dawn of our knowledge of magnetism, there have been a slew of products of magnetic doodads uh, that people claimed could cure all sorts of things or have all kinds of symptomatic benefits. In fact, um, you know, uh, physicians a couple hundred years ago were, were fighting off magnetic quackery. It's one of those one of those pseudosciences that just doesn't go away. I guess there's something just really appealing and sexy about magnets. It seems like they should work because they should be, you know, we're electrical creatures and it should affect our biology, but they just don't work. I guess the magnetic fields are not powerful enough. They don't penetrate deeply enough. They don't really have any kind of sustained influence on the functioning of the body in any way. So this is just... One of those things we'll be talking about 100 years from now, you know, the, late, the latest magnetic device or magnetic scan, but they just don't work. Having said that, there, you know, the exception is that now we're, that we're getting into things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, there actually are high-tech devices that do work because they're producing a powerful enough magnetic field at a certain frequency and focus, you know, that they're having some specific effect. But this is not the same as just putting a bar magnet under your pillow. I, I got to say, uh, maybe the thing is that the idea that magnets might do something good for you is simply attractive. I, I, have, to, <laughs> I have to say that, you know, I look up on the web uh, under magnet, uh, I don't know, treatment, device, whatever. You can buy magnets that you can strap onto just about any part of your body. So Yeah, absolutely. It's terrific. It sounds like there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, <laughs> snake oil's still here. I always figured that snake oil would be only uh, useful if you had squeaky snakes, but it turns out that you can always sell it. Clearly. I mean, snake oil has been around forever. I mean, as long as we have a recorded history, there were people selling some kind of miracle cure. So I, th I guess we're always going to need to talk about it and keep the actual factual information available. Steve Novella, thanks so very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Seth. Thanks. Stephen Novella is a physician at the Yale School of Medicine and host of the podcast Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Coming up, puzzling ideas about what might bring you good luck and one of the wackiest beliefs in quantum physics. It's Skeptic Check, friends like these on Big Picture Science. Are you earning and investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? 
Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. For this episode of Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science, we ask listeners via Facebook to provide examples of things their family and friends believe that they themselves can't believe they believe and can't seem to convince them otherwise. Now, we've talked already about medical beliefs. Another category based on the responses that we got could be luck and bad luck. Now, this was mostly regarding objects that listeners found their family and friends thought would deliver somehow the forces of fortune or just ruin their day. Now, is it possible that the universe is filled with these dueling energies and that all we need to do is tap into them? All right. Well, let's look at some of those examples submitted by listeners with Matthew Hudson. He's the author of The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Matt, many listeners wrote in citing examples of their family and friends' belief in lucky numbers. Now, what numbers have you found that are most associated with good luck and why? Well, in Western culture, number seven is the most popular lucky number. Uh, I haven't been able to find a singular source for why that number is special. It pops up in the Old Testament. and also pops up in other cultures around the world, uh, among the Arabs, the Japanese, Greeks. Uh, but no one has really pinned down the origin of that superstition. In China, the most popular lucky number is eight because the word for eight sounds like the word for prosper. And so people pay a lot of money for license plates with the number eight. The Olympics, when they hosted the Olympics, that started on 8-8-2008 at eight minutes after eight o'clock. And what are some examples of how lucky numbers are supposed to work? Is it that you wear a shirt with that number on it, um, that you're supposed to be... I don't know, you, the, the date needs to have your lucky number in it? Or what's an example of how a lucky number is supposed to help you? Well, people just have vague, positive associations with lucky numbers. And so if they wear a sports jersey with a lucky number or uh, they might plan an event for a date with a lucky number in it. And so just by association with those numbers, somehow they think that the positive luck from that number will transfer itself into the shirt and then you or to whatever happens on that date. And is there any evidence that this is true, that numbers do carry with them good fortune? As far as I know, there is no physical evidence that these numbers have a natural force in the world. It all works through psychology. So if you believe that something is lucky, then it changes your behavior. And then that can lead to what appears to be luck. I see. So if you put on your lucky seven shirt, you might feel more confident. And then because you feel more confident, you're going to perform more confidently or more accurately, whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a sport or a math test or whatever it might be. That's right. So there's actually a study in which subjects were given a golf ball and asked to make 10 golf putts. And half the subjects were told that the golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And these subjects made 35% more successful putts than the other subjects. So just feeling lucky made them feel more in control and more confident, and they performed better. And then in other studies by the same researchers, subjects perform better on cognitive tasks, like solving anagrams or playing a memory game when they had a lucky charm with them. So the idea with lucky numbers and lucky objects is that Luck is a real force that exists. It's something, it's almost tangible or an, perhaps an energy. And if you can just get close to it, um, it will benefit you in some way. People have a number of different ideas about luck and we treat it differently in different situations. Sometimes we see luck or essences as, as a force in the world. Sometimes we see it as a substance or a residue. Sometimes we see it as an energy. Sometimes we see it even as a personal skill that we can deploy. 
And I would assume that it also makes us feel as though we have some control over the world because so many events happen that are outside of our control. And if we have the sense that we can shape these events in some way, have some control over them, it does keep us happier and feel more sane in a world that can often feel quite insane. That's right. And people become more superstitious when they feel out of control or when they feel anxious. So, for instance, fishermen. Commercial fishing is by far the deadliest job in the United States. And fishermen have a lot of superstitions. They won't uh, leave on a Friday, many of them. They won't say certain words, won't whistle in the wheelhouse. And this may be because of all of the uncertainty involved in commercial fishing. A storm could come along and and tip over your boat, or you don't know if you're going to catch any fish on a given day. And so in order to try to gain some sense of control over their situation, um, they rely on all sorts of rituals to try to control their environment. Well, you're also getting at the idea of of bad luck. And um, in the case of the question that we put out to our listeners, a big picture science listener wrote that some people she knows think that certain objects have bad luck. Uh, For example, turtles and rabbits. And I I think she's referring to the actual animals, that turtles and rabbits themselves can bring you Mm -hmm. bad luck. Had you heard this? I hadn't heard that about turtles and rabbits. Now, I know that a rabbit foot can bring you good luck, although it's probably bad luck for the rabbit. But I hadn't heard about bad luck associated with turtles and rabbits. I hadn't heard that specifically about rabbits and turtles, but pretty much anything can be made to feel lucky or unlucky through culture or through personal experience or just through something that your mother told you when you were young. And so people have all kinds of different beliefs and they can contrast with other people. Someone might see something as lucky and someone else can see the same thing as unlucky. Further down the spectrum of bad luck is the subject of curses. And one of our listeners wrote in to say that his wife will not go to the King Tut exhibit because she believes in the curse. Now, if there were a curse of King Tut, how, Matt, would you imagine that it would be carried out? In other words, what is a curse supposed to be? Well, in that case, it could be the spirit of King Tut coming back for revenge, Uh, There are a lot of mystical and religious beliefs about death and bodies and burial. And so to disrupt a a burial ground or to to dig someone up uh, feels sacrilegious. And so after King Tut was, after his tomb was opened up and explored, a few people died pretty soon after. Uh, And so this rumor started making the rounds that there was a curse of, of the pharaohs, a curse of King Tut. Even though statistically someone did a study and showed that among the party that explored his tomb, there was not a larger number of deaths soon afterward than you would expect. And I think the the correlation is key here, or the proximity to the event is key here. As you said, um, there are not that many people that died soon after, but of course anyone who does come near the King Tut exhibit eventually will die. But the reason why this creates a mythology around it is it happened so soon after they had visited the exhibit or the burial ground. And that gets at this idea of correlation versus causation. So you can correlate two events, but that doesn't mean that one caused the other. Right. And it also also points to the confirmation bias. So if you're expecting that visiting King Tut will curse you or lead to bad things, and then you do visit him and then something bad happens... Um, you're going to attribute it to seeing King Tut. And you're going to be on the on the lookout for bad things so that if something ambiguous happens, you might automatically interpret it as a bad thing because you're expecting something bad to happen. And finally, you know, Matt, you're right that uh, we've evolved as, as humans to be self-aware, and yet we're not aware of our own irrational beliefs. And you write that even the most rational of all of us engages in some aspect of magical thinking. And I'm wondering... If you could give me an example of what sort of, oh, sort of illogical belief that you've caught the most diehard rationalists believing in. So, for instance, I'm, I'm pretty diehard rationalist, but I still knock on wood. And I know that it's complete BS, but uh, it makes me feel better when I do it. Well, Matt Hudson, thank you very much for this sane discussion of irrational beliefs. Thank you for having me.
Matthew Hudson is the level-headed author of The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Okay, we got a lot of examples of things that scientifically-minded listeners have been frustrated to learn that their friends and family believe, despite the lack of evidence. There were ample cases of belief in the supernatural, healing crystals and so forth. But one guy wrote in to say that the craziest thing that someone he knows believes in, and I mean of all the unsubstantiated fringe beliefs that are out there, he was incredulous that one of his acquaintances thought that string theory was falsifiable. Okay, string theory, this idea that when you get down to what the universe is made of, past the atoms, the electrons, and the quarks, and so forth, you arrive at tiny vibrating strings. It's a complex theory. It's put forth by quantum physicists. And the idea that someone he knows believes that string theory is falsifiable, in other words, it can be proven wrong, drives this listener crazy. Well, we know one person who can address this because he's even more preoccupied with string theory than our physics-minded listener. Hi, I'm Brian Green, professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University. Brian, we asked our listeners to share with us the oddest things their friends and family believe, no matter how much rational argument might be offered to the contrary. Many wrote in with examples of people they knew who believed in ghosts or crystals or iridology and stuff like that. But one guy wrote to say that the craziest thing that a family member believed was that string theory was falsifiable. That, to him, was the craziest thing, and we love that. So we're asking you, is it? It's not crazy. It does depend on the constraints within which you ask the question. If you allow me to build an accelerator of arbitrarily large size, in principle I could smash things together at sufficient energy to begin to probe the physics of string theory, if it's correct, and we should be able to test it. I think what the listener is suggesting is, though, if we stick to the technology that we have today, is string theory falsifiable? And that's a harder question. We have run ahead of technology in the ideas of string theory, and it is very difficult to prove the theory wrong with today's technological reach. But let me flip it around. It's at least conceivable to get information that bolsters string theory. We haven't yet, but the Large Hadron Collider could see evidence of a resonant tower of fields, particles, that would be indicative of string theory, could see evidence of extra dimensions, could see evidence of tiny black holes. So these are all long shots, but in principle, if you had any of those signatures, that would be pretty... Uh, pretty good evidence that string theory is heading in the right direction. Well, just to clarify, the idea that you can falsify a theory uh, means that you can devise an experiment that shows that that particular idea is simply not true. Of course, it doesn't tell you what is true, but at least you could stop working on that idea, right? But you're suggesting that while that might not be possible today, simply because of the limitations of the experiments we can do, it might be possible to truly show that string theory is right? Is there such an experiment? Well, proving something right is always pretty tough in any walk of life, science even more so. But you can gather evidence that bolsters your confidence that a theory is right. And yes, in string theory, there are experiments, and the ones I mentioned are good ones at the Large Hadron Collider, which were the evidence to turn positive see evidence of tiny black holes, as I mentioned, would, uh, you know, the evidence of supersymmetry, perhaps I should have mentioned that at the outset, is the most important one. These would all be pieces of evidence suggesting that this theory is a part of how nature works. Perhaps you could remind us, Brian, of the basic tenets of string theory, what, what it is at a level that uh, everybody can grasp. Sure. The basic idea of string theory is to try to tell us what objects, matter, energy, what it's all made of at the most fundamental level. So we all know about atoms. You know, atoms are made of electrons that swarm around the nucleus, which has neutrons and protons. And many of us know that inside the neutrons and protons are even tinier particles called quarks. And that pretty much is where the standard theory, it's called the standard model, the standard theory of how matter is constructed, that's where it pretty much stops. String theory suggests, and I really do underscore suggest because we definitely do not know that these ideas are correct, but it suggests that there's another layer of substructure, basically that inside particles there's a little tiny vibrating filament that looks like a little vibrating string. 
So that is what particles would be fundamentally, little vibrating strings, and the pattern of vibration is what dictates the properties of the particle. What about the possibility of looking for really large-scale cosmic effects of string theory, a, a crack, a discontinuity in space? And, and you could see this by just, you know, studying galaxies on the sky. Yeah, so you can also try to test string theory by looking into the sky with powerful telescopes. There are calculations that suggest there might be big strings wafting through space that you might see even in the microwave background radiation and work of my own has suggested that if string theory is right, it might be the case that there are little tiny temperature fluctuations smaller than the ones that have been observed that might fall into a very peculiar pattern. And that pattern would be indicative of string theory. It's certainly of interest to theoreticians to understand if strings exist. For experimentalists, it's kind of problematic at the moment because they don't have any machinery that allows them to get down to that level. But are you willing to speculate? I mean, suppose it turns out that string theory really does have legs, that it's really true. Any projections as to what that might change? How would that affect our lives? It's a tough question, of course, and I've been asked it before, and I find the best answer is to draw an analogy with quantum physics, because were you having a similar conversation with Heisenberg or Schrodinger or Bohr back in the 20s and 30s and asked them, okay, if this quantum mechanic stuff is right, will it change our lives? My guess is that most of them would say, well, not really. We're talking about atoms and particles pretty distant from experience. But then 80 years later, the fact that people have cell phones and personal computers, anything with an integrated circuit, all of that technology relies upon quantum physics, which is what allows us to manipulate the motions of electrons with the fantastic precision that allows these devices to operate, which is just to underscore that fundamental discoveries, you can't often know where they will lead in terms of life-changing implications. If string theory is correct, it too could have a big impact. I don't know what that would be. It's a theory ultimately of space and time. Does that mean we'd be able to manipulate space and time in unusual ways? Well, that's sort of speculation squared, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility. I think it's hard to think of any fundamental discoveries in physics that didn't have long-term and important consequences. Finally, Brian, what's the wackiest thing someone in your life believes that uh, you can't believe they believe? Oh, I don't know. My kids think I'm a smart guy. That's the wackiest thing right there. <laughs> you know, they could be right. Brian Green, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Brian Green is a physicist at Columbia University. He's the author of The Elegant Universe, Superstrings, Hidden Dimensions, and the Quest for the Ultimate Theory, and also The Hidden Reality, Parallel Universes, and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos. <laughs> Up next, conspiracy theories. At least that's what we're telling you. It's Skeptic Check, friends like these on Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm -hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe, maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. We're looking at ideas that people have chosen to believe and hold dear, even if they can't be proven. Unproven medical remedies and dangers, belief in luck and in curses, and interesting assumptions about quantum physics. But there's another category. I, you know, I was watching this Late Late Show. It's about kidnapping people, using a little psychosurgery on them, you know, and, uh, and making them colonize the moon and Mars. <laughs> Funny, huh? Except it's absolutely true. 
We've been on Mars since 62. Conspiracies. Guy Harrison is a science writer, and he's the author of 50 popular beliefs that people think are true. And sometimes the thing that people believe is true is that others are out to get them. Guy, one example that was submitted by our listeners was that the government was creating man-made earthquakes, and these were being caused by HARP. Now, that's a real science research program. The acronym stands for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, and it's studying the behavior of the ionosphere in the interests of terrestrial radio communications. HARP has become the subject of a number of conspiracy theories, and one is that this atmospheric testing has triggered not only earthquakes, but floods, thunderstorms, what have you. Any real evidence that the government is causing earthquakes and floods? Absolutely not. I mean, I, I would never say trust your government all the time about everything. However, when you make these kind of really extraordinary, outrageous claims, you've got to have some real evidence to back them up. Otherwise, it's just a good story, just gossip, and that's all. But how would this work? I mean, there, there seems to be a, a lack of basic physics here. What, what would possibly be the mechanism offered by people who say that this transmitter up in Alaska designed to study the ionosphere could somehow be causing an earthquake somewhere else on the Earth? Well, the, the short answer is that they don't explain it. They don't have answers. It's just sort of presented to most people as a mysterious, you know, death ray by the government or some evil villain that's going to cause all this chaos. The more sophisticated explanations that I've seen, in fact, there's a one of the History Channel pseudo documentaries had a thing about it where it's uh, it's ELF, you know, uh, low frequency vibrations, these sound waves, sort of like the subwoofer on your stereo system at home, creates these low vibrations that that cause uh, movement actually below the Earth's crust, in the Earth's crust, to cause or trigger an earthquake. So that's kind of, that's the more sensible side of it that some of them present. But most people with these conspiracy theories, they don't bother with that. They don't bother with the science. The more mystery, the better. It's uh, more appealing to more people. Yeah, I kind of wonder. Harp, you hear a lot of people harping on the Harp Project. And, and, and it's always cast as some sort of government conspiracy. And I suspect that that's at least partially due to the fact that it's, you know, the real intention of this program is, is mysterious to a lot of people. Uh, is that the source of the problem here or is it just that the government has, you know, some big project far away where we can't see it and who knows what they might be doing? Yeah, that's it's all of that. Yeah, Harp is actually based in uh, outside of Anchorage, Alaska, which is just far enough away where most of us can't really see it, and we just have to imagine what's going on up there. And they have something like I think 35 acres of antennas, you know, spread out over some land up there. So it probably looks, if you look it up on the internet, see some pictures, it might look like something. Like, what are they doing? They can't just be tinkering with the ionosphere for scientific research. They must be up to something. But it's not, by government standards, this is not a big project. It's pretty minor. It's pretty trivial compared to most government endeavors. It's not that big a deal. And it's not even run by the CIA or DARPA or anything like that. It's university professors and people like that who are out there actually doing the work. Um, you can contact any of them, ask them questions. It's not, not that big a deal. So to sort of wrap it up about HARP, we're interested in the ionosphere. That's the part of the atmosphere that actually refracts radio waves. It bends them back down toward the Earth. That's why you hear your favorite AM radio station from hundreds of miles away at night when the ionosphere becomes a mirror. Studying that, that's an old research topic. Uh, there, that's why the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico was built. So here's another project to study the ionosphere. We want to know about it so we have better communications, and people have turned it into government conspiracy. Well, there are a number of other big conspiracy theories out there that listeners have submitted as examples of what their friends and relatives believe, from 9-11 to even the horrible shooting at Sandy Hook. Uh, these are being offered as examples of events orchestrated by our government. How do you address the validity of conspiracy theories overall when there are cases such as Watergate where, you know, conspiracies really have taken place? Absolutely. That's why as good skeptics, as good thinkers, we all have to always keep an open mind, especially when it comes to conspiracy theories, because let's face it, conspiracies happen. They are real. They, we're not, this is not a claim like uh, ghosts or Bigfoot. This is real. Conspiracies happen all the time. Bad people get together, make plans, and do bad things. It's part of history. History's filled with examples. So whenever someone comes up with a conspiracy theory claim, you don't just dismiss it as impossible. There's nothing about it that violates the laws of nature. You have to consider it. You have to listen. However, 
you have to have standards. You have to demand evidence. And the demand for evidence needs to coincide with the outrageousness or the extraordinary nature of the conspiracy claim. So if somebody is saying, hey, I think a couple of politicians are getting together and they're stealing money from the government, okay, fine. Maybe they probably are. Let's look into it and see if they are. If, however, we say the United States government is actively spraying some sort of chemical agents that cause people to be more sedate or, or more violent, then we're going to need a lot of evidence for that, okay? A lot, not just an interesting idea proposed by somebody or some interesting-looking website. That's not enough. Well, at least you'd have an entertaining website. Uh, on a serious note, I just want to mention that Conspiracy theories, as much as we joke and laugh, they, they are sort of a pop culture phenomenon that's kind of a comical sideshow to us. Even people who believe in many of them laugh at many other ones. However, I, I think we also need to keep in mind there's a serious side to this, you know, and we saw it with the uh, shootings at Sandy Hook where people were you know, instantly coming up with these theories where they were claiming, they were accusing the, the parents of being crisis actors that were just faking their tears on television. And the whole thing was a government black operation that was designed to drum up support for uh, new gun control laws and to, you know, take away guns. And these things are outrageous. And we have to remember that, that conspiracy theories in general, they're a sign of weak skepticism and they can lead to really bad things. Not all of them are just silly things like the moon landing hoax, for example. Many conspiracy theories are very harmful. They really, they hurt people and they waste lots of money and they can cause a lot of damage in many ways. So it's not totally a joke. We need to, you know, we, we all need to work at being better skeptics so we don't fall victim to these things in general. Well, here's another conspiracy theory submitted by listeners that is a little bit more lighthearted. One man writes that his fiancée believes that the real Paul McCartney is dead and that MI5, which is the British Secret Security Service, and the Beatles covered it up. Maybe you could just give a quick overview. Of what about this Paul is dead belief? Yeah, back in the 60s, it was a little bit before my time. It was, I think, 66, something like that, when they just were wrapping up I think it was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, that, that album, whatever that was called. And he apparently, according to these conspiracy people, died in a car wreck on the way home, like late at night. And he was killed. However, the British government said, well, wait, we can't have this because we make so much tax revenue off the Beatles and we're going to get so much more off them over the next decades to come. We can't let him be dead. So therefore, they replaced him with a double. And so for all these years, the Paul McCartney we've been seeing and hearing is not the real guy. He died long ago. And then, of course, the, the conspiracy theory people went nuts because when you've got a lot of information like song lyrics or a visually busy album cover, you can pick out things. You can go crazy with it and find stuff. And then there's always a possibility the Beatles were even added to this over the years just to have fun and to play with it. But it's been a very popular thing. And there are many websites, books written about that. It's a fascinating thing, but there's nothing to it. I mean, the thing that gets me is the double. If, if if Paul McCartney was placed all those years ago, that means the guy who replaced him is a pretty darn good magician because the new Paul McCartney has had a ton of hits as a solo artist. Maybe he's better than the old one. That's, that's yeah, actually, yeah, kind of interesting. exactly. That, that sounds like an awful lot of trouble, but at least uh, the, the British government is getting their tax revenues, which is presumably the motivation for all of this. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. There's always money at the end of the trail on these conspiracy theories. All of this sort of gets at the remarkable coordination that would be required by these conspiracies because they involve governments and, and groups of interested parties that would work together to perpetuate a secret for years and years and years. That doesn't sound very likely to me. No, it's... It Complex government conspiracies are just, they're not credible in a general, most of the time in a general sense, because governments are made up of people, okay? We've seen, who, especially in a democracy, when you're, you're electing, you know, half the people you elect are just goofballs and wackos. And you just, when you've got all these people working together, I, I can't imagine how they could pull off these grand, perfect conspiracies like the Apollo moon landings, you know? It's just incomprehensible to me. I wouldn't say impossible, but it's, it's so extremely unlikely that they could pull it off. You know, Richard Nixon's a great example. Here's a guy who clearly was ethically challenged. He clearly was involved in conspiracies. He was busted. He's admitted it. However, 
that doesn't mean he could actually pull off the Apollo moon landing hoax and keep everybody involved quiet about it. All the astronauts, all that. I mean, he, it, it's just, it, it's, it's so unlikely that it, it becomes absurd. <laughs> well, we got one more here, Guy. Uh, there's a listener that writes he had a friend who was trying to convince him that uh, smart electricity meters that are, you know, on the outside of your house that meter how much electricity you've used, uh, they're being used by the government to spy on us. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about these smart meters and what they're really there to do. Uh, what it is, smart meters, a lot of communities are, are incorporating these where it will report your usage directly to wirelessly to the uh, utilities company. So no, you don't have to have some guy showing up with a clipboard, you know, fighting off your dog in the backyard just to take your meter readings every month. So it's just a way to save some time, save some, save some labor. It's more efficient. And, and they're right. The conspiracy people are right that the utilities companies can monitor your usage, peak hours, that kind of stuff. So the deal about these meters is simply that by monitoring your energy usage and transmitting that information directly to the energy providing companies, they could tell those companies, oh, this is uh, when they're uh, cooking big meals or this is when they're running their air conditioning or this is when they're not at home. You know, information that maybe uh, Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch don't want these companies to have. Yeah, smart meters, the problem really is that it's just one more intrusion. That's how, that's how people are viewing it. They're, they say, okay, this is one more example of the government trying to reach onto my property, extend their hand into my private life, and I don't want that. They should know anything going on in my house. That's where the concern is coming from. All right, well, finally, Guy, what's your favorite conspiracy belief? Probably my favorite is one a, a guy I knew told me about and went on and on about these underground cities all over the world that are inhabited by thousands of people, and they actually run the planet. They, without us knowing, they're down there calling all the shots. And that, that was really interesting because he, he claims there are literally vast cities the size of New York City that are you know, underground around the world. I found that one to be pretty, pretty cool. I wonder if the subways run on the surface. <laughs> guy Harrison, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me again, you guys. Guy Harrison claims he's the author of 50 popular beliefs that people think are true. Thanks to our friendly but rational production duo, Gary Niederhoff of Arba Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic Check, friends like these. You can find more Big Picture Science and more Skeptic Check on iTunes and through the link on our website, which has an extensive archive. While you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and you can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you believe that podcasting is a government conspiracy, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the program. And how do we know that we're not living in an alien bubble right now, created by aliens in our government and kept secret for 50 years by an underground cabal of doctors and other people with degrees who keep people under their mind control by spraying them with newspaper ink laced with a mind control formula on them while they sleep? Show me how that's not happening. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.